Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 26, Serious Advice on Writing Funny, an interview with Robert G. Lee. You are going to love today's interview. Bob is both fun and funny to talk to, and he's very good at his job, so I think you're going to find a lot of encouragement and some actual how-to tips and tricks. He's good at both of those. I'll make sure that you have links to all of the different things that we talk about that may be good resources for you, from books to DVDs to online classes. I'll make sure the links are in the show notes. So remember, for any of the shows when we're talking about something, there's a good chance that I'll have found a link to it, and I'll put them in the show notes for each episode. And those can be found at podcast.rightnowworkshop.com. And now, let's get on with the interview. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is comedian Robert G. Lee. Well-known in the entertainment industry as Hollywood's top warm-up comic, Robert's a veteran of over 1,500 episodes of such shows as The New Adventures of Old Christine, Just Shoot Me, Becker, and The Drew Carey Show. Robert has been seen on the Bananas comedy series, Showtime's The Jokes on The, VH1's Stand Up Spotlight, Comic Strip Live, and a variety of roles on such sitcoms as Wings and Perfect Strangers. To top it off, Robert just released his latest comedy project, Weisenheimer, and recently finished Can I Get a Witness Protection, a faith-based screwball comedy feature film he wrote and directed. Welcome, Bob. It's, uh, well, first off, it's great to see you, and <laughs> thank you so much for having me on your show. I am so glad you came on. Uh, you and I have been friends for a while, and I have to say, one of the things that I like most about you is your work. <laughs> yeah, I know most people usually say that we don't like you, but your work, we like a lot. <laughs> now, here's a funny thing. I don't know whether or not it's possible that I saw you before we ever actually met and became friends, but there was a moment when I was working at CBS Radford where Will and Grace was shot right? And um, I really, 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 really wanted this one literary agent. And I found out that she was a ginormous Will and Grace fan. And she was going to be in Los Angeles. She lives in, in Georgia. And I was like, hmm, if I could get two tickets to the show and like introduce her to anybody. <laughs> and I remember, of course, there was a stand-up comic there that I'm pretty sure was working harder than anyone else on the set. <laughs> And I read in your bio, I thought that that might have been one of your shows. I did the pilot for Will and Grace, and I did probably two or three episodes near the end of their run as a substitute, but that wasn't my regular show. Oh, so okay. It was probably somebody else. It would have been fun, though. It would have been a good story. But I have had other friends who, uh, I think we were, they came up and said, we, we saw you at the Drew Carey show. And then, you know, we, we were, we've been working together, Mark and Nicole Bear, which I think you know. So he's, yeah. a, he's an editor. She edited my film, and Mark... Uh, he's a cinematographer as well. And so it, that was very fun. Just like, oh, yeah, that was so you never know. You just never know who's going to run into you. That's right. That's right. Well, it's funny. You know, I've been away in New Zealand for almost a year. And so I knew that you were working on something. I knew some of my friends were working on something. I guess I've just been too full of myself and in my own world to realize it was the same something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so tell us a little bit about you wrote and directed a feature film. How'd that come to be? How did it come to be? Well, it's uh, the, the genesis of it, I would say, it's it's like everybody else. I, I came out to Hollywood and I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to make it in the show business. And what do you do? So I started doing stand-up comedy 30 years ago because I was the cheapest one I could hire. And, <laughs> uh, so I would do stand-up and then I fell into TV warm-up. And people, if you don't know what that is, it's uh, every TV show takes 
really four to five hours to film. And so they need a comic to keep the audit, get them going. But it's not just start off and tell some jokes like at the night, tonight show and then leave. You're there for the whole show. So they have to be laughing the same at the end of the show as they were at the beginning of the show. So I fall into that niche, uh, just ad-libbing and having fun. And I've got a family, so I want to stay in Los Angeles. Well, still, the dream of making films never left me. And I, I got together with some producers, and it was like, oh, it's easy to raise money. Oh, we'll just do Basically, we had a barn. We, let's put on a show. And what happened was a church outside of Los Angeles um, in not a very good neighborhood, was they were dying. And they were renting themselves out to shows like Star Trek and, and different movies just to keep the doors open. Wow. So, so we, we can rent this church for a very small amount of money. and let's put on a show. Let, let's make a movie. So that started, gosh, I, I wrote the script right away. I knew it was going to be like a, so I went to the church, I toured around and things in the church actually came, became part of the movie. I had been working with actors and um, different and actresses for quite some time, uh, putting together uh, comedy videos uh, specifically for our church, uh, which sounds very strange, but it was a very funny church. Um, it was. <laughs> and so uh, very talented people. People have been on Seinfeld and lots of different shows. And they're really talented people. So I wrote the script for them. And uh, we, did a, we did a staged reading. I found out where the laughs were. I filmed that. So I wanted to make sure that if we're going to do this, we got to make sure it's good. And uh, it, it, the, the plot is like Some Like It Hot or Sister Act, where a guy, um, he sees a, a gangland murder. And so he, uh, the, the DEA whisk him away and they put him in witness protection and, he, and they put him in a church where nobody will find him. Uh, but the first weekend there, the head pastor has a heart attack and dies. And so our hero who knows nothing about religion is in charge of a church. And so <laughs> that's what happens. And of course, hilarity ensues. But uh, they're, they're my friends and I put them in different uh, situations and characters. And it was, it's just a lot of fun. We made it for a very low amount of money. We went to Kickstarter and Indiegogo and we were done from the time it was conceived. And uh, we did the stage reading and we shot it eight months done. Then it took four years of post-production. Oh. And it's one of those, oh, because we had no money. And so we, right. we just stood in line, basically. Our, our editor worked on Supernatural. She's great, but she, we had to wait for her to finish the show. And then our composer, he worked on Amazing Race. He's great, but we had to wait for him to finish the show. Our, our editors, or excuse me, our special effects guys worked for Disney. So they're flying over to France to make Tinkerbell fairy dust come down for the new opening over there. And then when they were done, they could work on the, um, the opening and different, you know, gunshots and different things in our film that had to be put in with special effects. So, and then the, uh, our sound editor our um the guy that mixed everything at the end he was working on a motley crew documentary so all oh. we, we would be we squeezed in in between all everybody else's work so finally it was done uh we put it out to some festivals and then um, won a couple things best comedy different things and wow. the distributor picked it up and then it's another year before it can be put out because you've got to you got to do the cover they have to, the distributor needs time to grease the wheels to get it ready to talk to different retailers and things like that so it's finally done, and it's um, basically I, I just I just wrote the distributor saying, "Is it being streamed yet?" Because you know everything goes to Netflix or PureFlix, one of those things, and I haven't got an answer. It, it's been out for a little while, a couple months, and they it's like almost like a theatrical thing where they put it out in the theaters, then it goes to home video, and then they put then they stream it. So that's what we're waiting on right now. It's available as a DVD or Blu-ray at um, Amazon. You can just go to Amazon and type in, "Can I get a witness protection?" Yeah. That's the title of the film. That is that's, such that's a great title. as I can make it. 
Yeah, I love it. Well, and the other thing is, um, if you find out, you know, in the next, you know, little while, um, I'm saying little while, at whatever time that you find out when it's streaming, I'll just make a change to the show notes and make another link to wherever it's streaming. Yeah, so then people can see it. Maybe I'll be able to see it streaming, but I still, I mean, it has so many of my friends involved or in it, I have to buy it. Yes, and as a matter of fact, uh, if I'm not mistaken, everyone should buy it. I think everyone. everyone. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant to say, everyone. (laughs) And it's good for, and everyone should give it to gifts to everyone they know. That's right, because laughter is the best medicine, so we should be sharing. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Now, you have written a lot of different stuff, and I would imagine, I'm totally guessing here, so it's partly a question, that a lot of your comic stuff is totally written in a closet like me. Like I sit at home by myself and I write by myself all day. But when you're working on the film, and so you and I went to the same church for a while and we had the best drama department ever in the history of drama. I mean, seriously, amazingly funny stuff on serious subjects, which was, I I just loved it. And then the occasional when I was like getting ready to laugh and I was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm supposed to be crying. That's really moving. (laughs) So, so you've done serious, you've done funny, but in so many different media. So, um, tell us a little bit about your process. And, um, I'm sure that at a dinner party or something, somebody's like, Bob, tell us a joke. So tell us about how you actually form things that end up later being funny. Well, that's a very inter- that's a multi-layered question. It is, but we've got time to to discuss okay. it. Anything that might be helpful for another writer who likes to write comedy, think right. of it that well, way. You, you do have to realize, uh, as stand up is a, everything is based on the very same theory of opening, middle, closing. Stand up comedy just truncates it all and makes it into a, a short joke. So I like to play with stand up comedy. I've been doing it for so many years. I still do it. And just to give you an example, like today, um, I, 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 my wife and I had a situation yesterday. And so I, I said, all right, I think this is going to be a routine. I, I can see, but it, it's about misdirection. It's about leading them one way and then flipping it over. So I, I would open up. I mean, this is, this is very rough. I'm just going to give you an idea of how it works. But I would say, all right, um, you know, you know what it's like when you, when you and your wife, you know, there's a third party and, you know, one of you doesn't like the other person and you don't want to get in the middle of it. And it's kind of, so I say, well, my wife and technology hate each other. And so then I would just, I, then I'll tell, then I'm going to make technology as if it's a routine, a, a relationship rather about how I just want to get technology and my wife in the same room and make them work it out because I can't <laughs> keep coming in the middle of it and solving their problems for them because they won't learn if they don't learn how to just be mature adults about it. So anyway, I mean, when you write a routine, you get an idea, uh, like, okay, this is, uh, it's almost, a, it's a lot of simile. Um, men and women fighting is like a fight. Uh, and so I said, oh, that's a great idea. Let's, let's go with that. And so you, you extrapolate, all right, well, what would it be like? So I made it like a wrestling match between a man and a woman. And so I said, you know, in this corner, we have this, and this corner, we have that. Here are the rules, and the referee tells the, the couple what it's going to be like to have a fight. And all, almost every single couple in the world goes, I have to have that. I have to tell them. Because, of course, the, the deck is stacked against the men. But women and men both like it. So when you're yeah. doing stand-up comedy, you have to find something that's universal, that everybody can relate to. But it has to be special enough that they haven't heard it a thousand times. So I always tell young comics, 
Don't do McDonald's jokes. Don't do airline jokes because those are water cooler jokes, things that anybody can come up with. Hey, have you noticed this over here? Like they have school for the blind. Well, who could see that sign? <laughs> and it's like, all right. Yeah, okay. That, that's, that's comedy basic 101. When you do it in front of a crowd, you have to tap into something that they all know, but no one's thought of a joke about that. It's like, oh, that happened to me. So you take your life experiences. You're, you're asking how I'm, I'm, this is a long way to get to how I yeah, work. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, so, you know, you go in the hospital for a colonoscopy. Well, there's a routine. You're got, so it's like, all right, I think I'm going to be able to come up with something. Now, other people have that, but it's particular to my age. And then I just go off on tangents and let's keep it as clean as possible because I work clean. But it's, it's a common experience for a lot of people that it's sort of hush-hush and no one's really talked about it. So when you get up on stage and talk about it, people just, it's like this big release. You can feel it. So I, I do comparisons between parents today and the way I was raised. And, and people go, yes, I understand. That's exactly how I feel. And so people, it, it, when I say universalism, it's, it's something that everybody can relate to and understand. If you do very particular humor, it's got to be off the charts funny for people to go, I don't, I don't get this at all. So, I mean, Steve Martin even made jokes about that. He said, I worked at a plumber's convention and he gave a very specific plumber's joke. And it was funny because we knew he was mocking the fact that plumbers don't talk like this, but he would talk. Anyway, so I'm trying to think. Of what, so how it works with stand-up is that. I, I mean, I, I think of, okay, what experience do I have? Um, how can I make it into a joke? And, you know, the whole Me Too movement and, well, my name was Robert G. Lee, and a year ago, I, I the name was Mud. I don't know if you, you were you were away in New Zealand, but Robert G. Lee was um, you know the, the Southern thing, and people were mad about him. They're taking down statues. Right. So I, I'm now going to be less offensive. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to insult anybody, so I'm I'm changing my name to Malcolm X. Lee, and that's much less offensive. And so people, and I just <laughs> take the blame for everything that uh, I haven't groped any women, but other men have. So shame on me. So it's just you just yeah. take whatever's happening in the world and extrapolate into using the craft. And the craft is you use exaggeration, you use setup and payoff, you do the pattern of one you know setup, setup, punchline. Uh, but it's always like a magician, and that you're misdirecting. Yeah, it's like you're, you're taking the audience over here and you flip it and you, and you surprise them with a joke on the other side. Uh, I mean, that's just, that's the most basic kind of joke. Yeah. I would say that's a foundation. Then once you learn how to do that, you really have to move. If you're going to go further, you have to move into story and story is a very particular thing that if you're just doing gags, it's not going to work. I mean, so many of the old Blake Edwards, Peter Sellers um, gun, uh, Peter um, where he was, Inspector Clouseau, you know, mm -hmm. really hilarious stuff. And if you're watching without any need for a story, you're fine. But if you <laughs> want to have something that moves you and that takes you to a certain place, no, there's really no story there. So you have to start investigating story. And then from that, I, I started writing animated scripts. Animated scripts, a little more forgiveness on story. I wrote for VeggieTales for, for quite a while. And, uh, and, and, I mean, in that case, they were looking for writers that, understood how to make jokes, but also understood the Bible because they found people that could write stories about the Bible, but they're very, very serious and the scripts weren't funny, or they could find the Monty Python sensibility, but it was very irreverent and cursing. Uh, <laughs> right. A lot of stuff. I was like, we can't show this to parents. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I, I started, I, I went to film school and, and I learned a lot about story, but not enough. 
And because uh, I was still in that gag man mentality and I was doing the stand up and, and that should be all that's necessary. I met a guy named Sean Gaffney. If you haven't had him on your podcast, you should. Uh, and he's working on a book called The Theology of Story. And it just opened my eyes. It's like there have been different people who've talked about ultimately story. Um, and I think, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it was Joseph Conrad who did it. And the, the, he, there are a lot of myths around the country, around the world, and they all had similar themes. And he found that they're all similar. But the, the key ingredient that he missed was, or that he dismissed, was that everything echoes the Bible perfectly. Yeah, and when yeah. I saw that, I was like, oh, my, that's just amazing. So, now, are you talking about Joseph Campbell, uh, A Hero yes. with a Thousand Faces? Thank you. Okay. Yes. Good. You are knowledgeable. I'm a <laughs> I, I try to be prepared. Thank you. I'm a Girl I'm, I'm Scout. <laughs> <laughs> to go deeper or to on a more religious bent than um, Joseph did, it's you start off with. Every story starts off with paradise. It starts off with, this is your normal. This is what's happening. And then all of a sudden, something happens. Now, the biblical view is, well, that would be the garden and paradise. And Satan comes in and tempts. And then you're off on an adventure. And then it builds and builds. Even in film school, they said, what is the crisis of the Bible? Where everything happens, it's the worst point. And so they go, oh, you're bringing up the Bible in film school. And it was like, oh, the crucifixion. That's the crisis of the Bible. Everything builds toward this one event. And that's the death experience. And then the climax is the resurrection. And then you end up in a new paradise at the end. So when I say the theology of story, I mean, you take the entire Bible from the beginning to the end, and it has the rising and falling action, and it has characters, and it has the midpoint pinch where you go all in. It's like, this is what story. And so what they've found is that every story that reflects the Bible perfectly resonates with us. And you have famous writers like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis who knew this and they wrote Narnia and the whole uh, episode, you know, when you go into Mordor, you realize it's a Christian writer who is making the same points the Bible has made. You don't realize it until afterward and you go, oh, that was a great story about redemption or that was a great story about X, Y, and Z. But the beats, if they don't follow the Bible exactly, you get bored and you go, I don't know why it didn't work. It just didn't work. It's like, well, told a bad story. So <laughs> I've been so immersed in this and having so much fun. I can tear a script apart in, in minutes after reading it and go, well, they've got the crisis isn't the right point. It's not building. It doesn't have the, the right. I had one friend who wrote something said, no, 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 no. His crisis moment of where it's all gone to hell in a handbasket and the climax where he wins was on the exact same page. Oh. On a, a 120-page script, no, 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 no. We have to feel the crisis of the death experience. And that's called the wafer scene. That's the disciples on Saturday, to use the biblical term. That's the the pain of, oh my gosh, everything we worked for is over. You've got to feel that in the script. And then you have to fight for the climax. Of how? What's happening? What's happening? You know, Rocky gets in there and he goes the distance. So I get so excited about story now, more so than just gags. Gags are the craft that I put into a comedy because I know how to turn a phrase and I know how to make uh, characters do things that are exaggerated and you, you find that, Oh, this script doesn't work because the jokes are too exaggerated. You got to pull back. That's not based in character. I don't believe anybody. You got to fi- work those things out. There's so many points, parts to it, but yeah. ultimately, if it doesn't tell a good story, we're not interested. So to finish up your question for me, what I love in my process is the great. What if, um, um, 
Frederick Beekner has written a book called um, about telling the truth, and it's um, finding um, in in the story of the of of the gospel story. But there's tragedy, there's comedy, and there's a fairy tale, and it's all this great what if that the tragedy is the fall, and the world is broken, and people die of cancer, and it's horrible. The comedy is the redemption. It's not ha ha comedy. It's the lifting up something that came in by, as a surprise, and that just makes people go, oh, "There's hope." And then the fairy tale is, look, someone paid the price for you, and you get this just by saying yes. And then now it's the fairy tale ending. So all these things are intertwined that we love with stories, but it all comes back to this basic theology of story. So yeah. for me, it's the great what if. I like to find an analogy or a metaphor for what this story is. And it's like, what if X, Y, and Z happen? And then I just go. Uh, best example of that would be Bruce Almighty or Liar Liar. Yeah. Those are <laughs> Fantastic! What if stories? What if someone you know was able to be God for a day or a week or whatever? And what if you couldn't tell a lie? It's like, oh, that's a great what if. And then you find so many things about our human character that comes out in those kind of stories. So that's what I love. Yeah, yeah. So then, it, uh, when when you were talking, I was thinking that a lot of the choices that you're making as you're developing. You know whether it's the 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 shorter jokes that you might do in stand up or the the longer version. I saw some clips on your website with um, one of them was. I, so am I saying this right? Is it Weisenheimer? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Yeah. So and I saw. Friend. Oh, he's a Weisenheimer. That that's from my generation. Yes. Ah. Oh, okay. Wow. So there there's some age gap that I'm not aware of. <laughs> um, sorry, we'll edit that out. Um, <laughs> I, I was making a joke before, before we started recording that I thought it must be really fun for a lot of the actors when you do an independent film and it takes so long to finally get to the point where the film's distributed that you can go to the theater and go, oh my gosh, I look so young. <laughs> And that's, so it's, it's both good and bad. Cause when I see old stand-up comedy that I did, oh my gosh, I've got clips from 30 years ago and I've got the mullet and yes, I look a lot different. So those are, those are embarrassing. Oh I've, got the, I've got the Bill Cosby sweaters on and you're not allowed to wear those anymore. They're, they're actually against the law. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> These are all um, like under lock and key and safe. And No, they're on YouTube embarrassing oh. me daily. Okay, well, you know, now everybody's going to go look. I want to see. Look for the Cosby sweater. There it is. He's got a mullet. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. When we got married, John had longish hair. You know, he, oh, yeah. you know John. So um, he's had short hair and long hair on and off his whole life. And I told him, listen, my grandfather is very conservative. Pretty much my, my whole point in hurrying and getting married, even though we hadn't finished college, was I was like, listen, if my grandpa finds out what we're doing, he is going to come after us with a shotgun. So let's just get it over with now. But he doesn't have good eyesight, so just make sure the front of your hair looks short, and it'll be fine. Well, I told the hairdresser this. I don't know what she was thinking. Worst mullet ever. And I'm like, this is my wedding day. <laughs> But no, my grandpa never knew that John had long hair, so I guess <laughs> it worked. <laughs> okay, so back to writing. So, um, so you've done all kinds of different things. You've got you got the stand up. You've got the very short skits that are done live. You've got um, the the feature length film that you wrote. But then you were able, because of your situation, to think, oh, you know what? This would make Joel look good or funny. This would make Catherine look good or funny. And you had already visited the location and you're like, I could use this in that, in that location. Mm -hmm. 
which is pretty cool. The only thing that I can think of that kind of reminds me of that in a novelist's life is that um, there's a lot of people, a lot of really good uh, artistic people doing pre-made book covers. And sometimes I'll see a book cover and I'm like, oh, I just have a story idea. I have to buy the book cover because now I know what the story's about. <laughs> so when I was listening to you talk, it sounds like Part of it is um, the character that you have in your mind, even with the husband and wife skit, you know, everybody has an idea of, of who those characters are, but it's also who your audience is. Like it's a different audience on a Sunday morning church skit than it might be um, in the, you know, Saturday night comedy or the Monday afternoon um, TV warm up, right? Yes. It, you, one of the first things you have to learn as a performer is know your audience and you can't just go up there and you find out very quickly. It's always about them. It's not about you. And you try to get what you want to say and and kind of finagle it in there, but you are going for a certain audience. I know if I'm going to make a faith-based film, I know who my audience is. Now there's 125 people that go to 125 million, excuse me, people that go to church every week. So it's a big, big crowd. Uh, And, but as a standup, it's, there's a difference of playing to a church crowd where people can bring their grandmas and their kids and it's a wide spectrum and everyone reaches a certain age level. Like uh, if I just did a high school group, Oh, my material changes dramatically. It's not whether it's clean or dirty, but high school kids can only relate up to their age level. Right. So I can do relationship humor, but I can't do anything about marriage because they haven't experienced it and they don't like it. You could talk a little bit about their parents, but they don't care. Talk about me. Uh, <laughs> right. If you have a wide spectrum audience of, of people, then you can you have more material. But with films, you're still trying to hit that universal story that everyone, oh, they can feel this. Uh, it's like people are watching This Is Us on network television. It's like they may not have experienced that. Nobody who has two twins and a third boy that's been adopted. Nobody, but everyone resonates with so many things in that story that we're crying. We love it. We love to see our experience shown in a different light. So when I work on something, does it resonate? Do I feel this story? Does it have weight to it? Um, And weight is just a good way to describe things. So sometimes if it's just a joke I have, okay, it's a short joke. It's just a paragraph or it's just a one-liner. It's something I put out on Twitter. Okay, that's a joke. It's done. There's no weight to it. But some things have a lot. You've got to unpack. It's going to take a while to unpack this. So that's the more involved story. And so you have to build the story. And you've got to have the rise and fall and and the characters who make stupid mistakes, which is one of the problems we have with faith-based films that no one's allowed to do anything wrong. Uh, So (laughs) it's like we all have to be perfect all the way through. And of course, that's not the human experience. And the Bible isn't like that at all. The Bible would not be allowed in movie theaters today. Uh, Yeah, the Bible probably shouldn't be allowed in church. I mean, very violent. Uh, so (laughs) So to get back to your question, it's know your audience and know what you're trying to tell those people. And for me, as a stand up one of my favorite comments ever was a guy came up after him and says, okay, look, I know you talked about Jesus, but you made me laugh. So it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> Humor is a great way to break down defenses because people have their backup. It's like, I don't, I don't trust this. And it's like, why do people make fun of faith-based films? Because a lot of it are just, they're just sermons. And yeah. it's like, you're just preaching to the choir. That to me is not filmmaking. That's just a, a, somebody filmed a sermon and they hit an emotional button every seven minutes, like clockwork. And you kind of feel like it's kind of cheesy. That's not what I aspire to. I I think there should be excellence in art and that people should be able to relate to it. So the Princess Bride 
is a fantastic story. Uh, so I think it's it's a religious story. I think I mean, there's so many films that they're not religious at all, but they have a, a religious message underneath about love and redemption and grace and never stopping when you love, you know, always fighting for the one you love. These are themes that we can all relate to. So yeah, you know, you're, I, I know I'm not going after a Martin Scorsese audience. They're never going to like me. And my wife even says, you know, you should do comedy out in some of the clubs. Like, well, that's not my audience. I know I can do it and I did it in the past, but we have nothing to relate to uh, with each other. And, and, and that's when, when I started doing stand-up comedy, I was in the clubs and my material wasn't growing. It was, what did I have? I had 20-somethings who were using the comedy club as foreplay, basically. <laughs> yeah. and, so, and, and they could only relate. I, I was married. I had kids. I, I was older than half the audience. But when I left the clubs, because I just, I, I wasn't growing. I, I wasn't moving. It wasn't turning into what I wanted it to be. And I started performing in churches. I found my people. And, <laughs> oh, know your audience. And then my material exploded because, oh, these, we all have the same experience where uh, we, we can talk about our grandparents and, and what it's like to be a parent and the young kids. Now, as the comedy clubs grew, people got married and had kids. And so some of the material came over, but still the perspective is totally different from my perspective. If you get a Bill Maher in a stand-up crowd and they dig him, they're not going to like me. Right. A totally different perspective on life. So yeah. you, you have to find your audience. You really do. So I'm thinking about what you said and thinking that um, a lot of my audience are going to be novelists, not necessarily exclusively, you know, maybe some nonfiction, maybe some people are working on screenplays, but I'm thinking about, um, you know, the different genres that people are writing in, in the commercial world. So I'm thinking like for a thriller writer, maybe they're looking at their big story. They've got just little moments of levity to break up the seriousness, but in a way that maybe they can twist the levity so that it actually points even more towards this massively serious thing. I mean, I've seen you do that with some of the, the skits at church. The, to insert levity in anything is important. I mean, you've got, you've got Shakespeare. I, I, I don't want to harp on this, but go back to Jesus. Jesus was funny. People <laughs> yeah. were very serious and he had a serious point in mind, but he was funny. He told jokes that you don't get the attention of thousands of people without throwing in some jokes. Yeah. The miracles might've helped, but still, <laughs> I was like, you've got to be funny. And uh, so a, a friend sent a script over and I said, there, there's nothing funny here. It's just this drone. And so we love the Avengers movie. Why? Because we want to see the Hulk take Loki and go bam, 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 bam. Like That's bam, the scene bam. I was thinking of. It's just, it just totally breaks us. It's like, it's so unexpected, which is what humor should always be. Yeah. But that's why you have the crazy character who comes in. It's like, I'm going to be the wise, wise acre and I'm going to make smart out comments. You need those characters just for relief. Um, yeah. Even Spielberg uses it all the time. If you look at Jaws, there's so many, they're called treacle breakers. These, these serious points where you just insert humor. And I mean, Roy Scheider, when the shark comes up out of the water and he sees it, he turns around and he says, we're going to need a bigger boat. Huge laugh because it's a tension release. Right. That's the best. Every time Spielberg tries to be funny in movies like Hook, he fails miserably. Every time he inserts a joke after a tense moment to release tension, it succeeds wildly. So he's learned over time, you know what? I'm not going to be making many more of these 
comedies like Hook. I'm going to go for adventure. And Indiana Jones is a great example of something that's yeah. really funny in the middle of you, you, ten, Star Wars is doing it. You know, it's like when when Han Solo turns around to um, Chewie and goes, "You're cold," you know, and the lady, it's like, "All right, the Wookie carpet." We understand it. It's, it's a joke. Yeah, but all these things release tension. And because you just can't have the audience ah, all the time. You have yeah. to have a give and take. And if, but if you have nothing but jokes in a comedy with no drama, we're not going to like that either. We're very yeah. particular animals. But I do think for science fiction, anything, uh, there, I, I really can't think of anything where you have something where a little bit of levity doesn't help leaven the bread and make it richer. So I would heartily suggest, yeah, Find someone to punch up a joke. You know, there is an area right here. This guy does exaggerate a lot. You can have this person enter. It's not just people saying funny things. It's by physical humor sometimes. Or a scientist who's so befuddled and he keeps losing his pen and, and he picks up the wrong thing when he has some. Just visual humor is great. So there's always ways, to, to my mind, to sneak in humor to make things better because we just we love those kind of movies. Yeah, yeah. You just reminded me of something. I'm like, oh, I should put this in a book. There have been some times when I have been so completely focused on what I'm doing on my computer. Um, and I have been moving my mouse and the mouse wasn't moving. And I was like, man, it's a stupid thing. Like the batteries are dead again. And then I look down at my hand and I'm moving my cell phone. And oddly, it doesn't move the mouse. <laughs> but those are the little things that you could have like somebody you know, researching something in a detective fiction or whatever, and it's all very tense and whatever, but they can't get their mouse to work. And then they look down, it's actually their cell phone in their hand. I mean, you could just use your own experiences, right? Exactly. Oh, that, that's perfect. And not only that, but it's a great setup for later. Uh, everything in science fiction and detective stories are set up and payoff. And if you have that character where he, he misplaces things or yeah, uses a cell phone as the mouse or, or uses the wrong tool, like, oh, that's going to come in later. I know it is. And that's the brilliance of it because you've distracted us. It's the gun on the mantle, but it's something different, and that's going to pay off. And that's when we love it. it. It comes out of character, and it feels organic, and it makes us laugh along the way. We want to know, well, what, what's he going to screw up on next? Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's one thing that I've actually heard writers struggle with. Um, I actually have to remember to ask you two questions. So one is, you know, we've um, – depending on how many books on writing and stuff that, that you've read, there is the adage, um, if you're going to show a gun, make sure it goes off before the end. Um, so are there any um, times when you're, I don't know if you even read other people's work much, but are there any um, like tips or hints that you want to give people like that? Like how to make sure that your payoff is paying off. And the other side of that question is, is that my guess is you, like most writers, are not putting in all your best moments, you know, maybe some of them, but all of your best moments are not in the first draft. Well, you're absolutely right. And and even Steve Martin talks about this. Uh, and it's, if you ever, if you look at the, um, have you seen the, the Masters um, series? Oh, Masterclass? Masterclass, yes. Uh, so Steve Martin does, and he, and all the way episode like number 25 or 24, something like that. He talks about a play he was writing and he, he, he kept watching the audience and realized they weren't quite getting the, the themes he was talking about. So, Oh, well, wait a minute. How about, how about if I insert this and he put it in and go, Oh, that's much better. Oh, wait, I've got to clarify that. And he goes, if you think this happens in a linear fashion in the first draft, you're, you're crazy. 
So this is Steve Martin, one of the most brilliant comedy minds that we have. Yeah. And it takes him a long time to find what the piece is about. The yeah. first draft is, and people have said this, it's just, it's, it's called the vomit pass. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, just blah, you're just getting it out. Now for me, my process is I start brainstorming. And uh, if it's a screenplay idea, I just, any idea, I just put it down, put it down. This is, this is the climax. This is the opening. This is a character piece. This is funny. This is a gag. Ooh, I want this to happen. This is a set piece. And then when I'm after maybe 15, 20 pages, I realize this is, this is a movie. I, I think this is going to work now. And so then I start organizing it. And then I really get anal about, this is my inciting incident. This is the opening. This is this is the first act. This is the opening of the second act. This is when we go off on the journey. And I start breaking it down. And that helps with brainstorming because, oh, I don't have a crisis moment. I better, I, that, that's got to be this. Oh, I don't have a midpoint pinch or I don't have the, um, the temptation to get out of it in the middle. Oh, I've got to, so the craft really helps. I start putting it all in. And that's where the, what we would call gun in the mantle comes in. It's like, yeah. I got to set this up. It's all set up and payoff. Oh, I don't believe that character did that. Why? It didn't set it up right. But if you set it up as a character piece or a need, what they really want, what their dream is, all you got to do is set it up. And then by the end, they go, oh, I was there the whole time. I didn't even see it. Of course, that's what they're going to do. Uh, and that's the brilliance of surprise. So it, it, as um, my friend Sean Gaffney, and I will not get this right, but it goes, the, the, the climax has to be what we all expected, but nobody knew was coming. And, and it, it's, it's, I'm phrasing it badly, but it has to be a surprise, but yet we knew everything. It's like, of course, that's the only way it could have ended. Right, right. No idea that's what they're going to do. Yeah. So that's the difficulty of being a writer and that you've got to constantly surprise your audience because if, they, if they're 10 steps ahead of you, and they are, yeah. and give them that, and they go, I'm bored. No, you got to surprise us and constantly come up with new ways. Um, and I will go back to um, this is us. And I don't know if you're a fan of that, but everyone's always talking about the surprise. It's like, oh, I didn't expect that. They go backward and forward in time when they play with you. They play with, they set things up two or three episodes ahead of time. And then you realize I was watching something from 20 years in the future. You, you people are good. You, I, you were taking me down one road and you flipped it over to another again. The magician, you know, if they're good, they can say, do whatever they want, and then they can bring an elephant out on the side, and you never <laughs> saw it coming. Because right. Here's the flashy show, girl, and, oh, you distracted me with something shiny, and, oh, that's what you really wanted to do. <laughs> uh, so it's hard to be clever, I think, in a big piece. It's almost easier in a short little joke. You can surprise people and then move on, but you have to keep coming up with those things as a stand-up. But as a writer, you've got to do it out of a place of character and believability. Some people just think, oh, let's just, I mean, a lot of comedies just, they're crazy. And, but you leave going, I don't really believe what's happening right now. So, but if it's grounded in character, oh my, it's just uh, so good. Like, have you seen um, the, oh, it's, it's Mrs. Mizell. Is it, um, what is it? The I've seen on. the ads, but I oh. haven't seen it. It's so um, wonderful. And I'm getting the title wrong. Forgive me on that. You'll have to go back and just. Yeah, put I'll put it in the show on. notes. Like maybe the marvelous Mrs. Mizell or. Yes, yes. Somewhere. But it's so grounded in character. She's um, a Jewish woman in the 50s. And her parents are something we, nobody has that experience, but we all know that's the way it is. And we, just, we laugh at them because their jokes come out of character. And we love it so much. It's a really good series. The incredible. 
The Marvelous Mrs. Mizell. I, I'm, I'm sure I've gotten it wrong, but it's on Amazon, if I'm not mistaken. All right. Yeah. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Nice. Cool. And so probably maybe that's your last piece of advice. Watch funny things and try to figure out why you think it's funny. Definitely. Uh, when you're starting stand-up comedy, I tell people, go go to a comedy club. Go watch as much stand-up comedy as you can and realize you can tear that apart. It's like, why does that work? Why is that so funny? Oh, that was exaggeration. And then he set something up and he buried it for like 15 minutes. And then he brought it back as a callback. Totally surprised everybody. There's a science to it. Oh, and you start breaking down films. You can break down any film into beats and figure out, okay, that's what I've got to do in the first act. Oh, that's what I have to do in the second act. Oh, that's a really good climax. That was a great twist. You've got to watch material. You've got to watch and then watch bad stuff. And you go, <laughs> it's like, I always tell people the best way to be a parent is to watch parents do it poorly. And you say, <laughs> ah, I will never do that. Okay. <laughs> so when you're a writer, read books, watch movies and go, that was horrible. I will. Oh, this is, this is making me angry. Don't just get angry. Go, why am I angry? Oh, because X, Y, and Z. It's shot poorly. It's acted poorly. This isn't done right. Well, then go do better the next time. Now you know what you don't want to do. Sometimes that's what art is. I will not be doing this. I'll be doing that. Right, and right. You, you aspire to something. You may not reach the heights that others have, but if you just keep pushing and you know your craft, then you have a much better shot. And it's, it's so great that people say to magicians, how did you do that? It's like, it's just a trick. That's all it is. They, they have studied it. They have dexterity and they know how to fool you. But that's what writers are. They're, they're people who just know how to fool you yeah. and sucked into it. Why did I get so sucked into that? Why do I love this character even though he does horrible things? Well, because the writer has a craft and they're so good at it, they know how to suck you in. And this character will be likable, more likable by the end. But I've got to get you to at least say, well, I hate what he's doing, but he's awfully interesting. I want to, I want to see where this goes. It's all the craft behind it. So sometimes it's not there the first, first version. When you say first draft, no. Uh, I, this is my favorite example. M. Night Shyamalan, um, Sixth Sense. He didn't know until the 10th draft that <gasps> Bruce Willis was dead. Really? Yeah. So he rewrote it, rewrote it, rewrote it, and that was that's been the problem of the last decade is that he wasn't rewriting films as much as he should have. And the last one he did was really, really good. But when he was doing the Sixth Sense, all of a sudden the tenth draft, he looked at it and he stood, he stepped back and he realized oh, Bruce Willis has been dead. Though that's a spoiler alert. Uh, so I was like, <laughs> yeah, never you seen, seen it. Sixth Sense. I ruined it for you. But <laughs> all of a sudden, then he went back and, and he. Looked at all the clues. Oh, I could put red here, 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 here. And then the whole thing gelled and became just this bit of perfection where you, it was twist upon twist. And that was the ultimate twist that everybody left, you know, so shocked. It was genius, but he didn't have it first time out. That's encouraging. And I hope everybody is really thinking about that 10th draft. That's a lot of work. It is. It's, and, and it's like, you really find it the second and third or fourth draft, but then you give it to your friends and then you put it, you put it on its feet. I, I'm a big believer in staged readings for screenplays because you find out where the energy is and what, and the acting's not going to be perfect, but the audience tells you, I'm loving this. I don't like this section at all. Oh, I don't like those two people. I like him. And then you go back and you rewrite it. I, I did one staged reading one time and a friend came up and said, I like that a lot. What do you do now? I said, well, what I'm going to do now is take the space between the jokes and move them closer together. That's my plan. 
<laughs> nice. You know, it's funny. I've heard at least two people who um, have um, narrated their own books into audiobooks who have said, oh my goodness, if I had thought about what this sounds like when I read it out loud, I would have written it differently. <laughs> and some of it is just like some things are hard to say out loud. Um, and other things, uh, one person in particular, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago's guest was Mary Castillo. And she started audit, um, narrating her own audiobooks. And she said that one of the things that she decided not to do is she's not going to go back and narrate her chiclet books that have a lot of steamy scenes in them. She's like, I can't do that. I just can't say all of that out loud. It was totally different to write it with a typewriter. Now, see, now that is actually would be a very funny comedy scene of a shy audio person reading a very steamy novel where it's if you if you had a Don Knotts kind of character and then he took her took her 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 breast and then well you yeah so it's just it, we love embarrassment we and again that scene would come out of character yeah uh, so it's like oh this character reading something really, really raunchy, that's just funny. Or a church, you know, the church lady having to recite back very, very dirty things from the Bible and being embarrassed. That, that, that's, right. We love those things. I don't think I could read Song of Solomon out loud. Maybe in front of a crowd of romance writers, but not at church. <laughs> yeah, that whole pillar. Yeah, that's uh, that, that gets, it gets pretty racy. It yeah, it does. It does. I just don't want to talk about her twin orbs at all. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, it is always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. This, I'm sure, is helpful to the rest of my listeners. And as always, I love being able to choose my guests because I always get something out of everything that we talk about. Well, it's been a pleasure. I hope that everything worked. I mean, I don't know if you have any more questions, but if not, we'll do another one down the road. Excellent. Um, I, I know you as the host, you're going to say, what do you want to pitch at the end? Uh, yeah. my, my whole thing is if you want to bring me out for stand-up comedy, uh, you can go to my website at robertglee.com and that's got my Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you want to watch my movie and you're intrigued, uh, can I get a witness protection? And that's on Amazon. And I think it's like 11 or 12 or $13. I don't yeah, know. It's not very much. I was just looking not at very it. Much at all. Uh, if you want to get the Blu-ray, it's a lot more expensive, but just get the DVD and have fun. <laughs> Um, and other than that, I, I just hope you have a, a great day. And thank you so much, Kitty, for just, just, this is an encouragement. You're helping people by learning. And this is like your, it's your own masterclass. So good job for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And one more quick question. Um, I know that uh, one of the things that I find difficult sometimes with really funny stand-up comics is that there's always some part where I'm like, okay, I didn't think that was funny. That was just gross. But um, you have, I think, eight clean uh, comedy, are they DVDs? Is it something people can purchase or do people actually have to be in an audience to hear your work? No, I do have um, lots of videos in there on my website. On the website. Uh, and it's on, they're on Amazon as well. But basically, I just I, the, the first ones I consolidated into my best of Bob. And I took the, the mullet years and the, <laughs> the mid-mullet years, and I put them all into one uh, DVD. So there's that. Uh, Weisenheimer is the most recent one. And I'm working on my next one called Rantopedia, where I... Oh. I um, I've got a, I, I am making an encyclopedia of my last 30 years worth of rants. So I'm writing that book where it'll be. And so it, I'm, I'm close to being done, but I've got, I've, I, I, every time I put a new joke in, it gets longer and longer. So it's like 70,000 words now. And you realize that, but there's a difference from doing it on stage 
and difference from doing it uh, in print. And so that, it, it's kind of Dave Barry-esque, but it's alphabetized all my rants. So oh, that, that's nice. that'll be the name of my next stand-up video along with the book that'll come out. So I'm always working on a new product. Um, um, but yes, if they want to find my comedy, they can certainly uh, go on Amazon or go on my website and they, it's all there. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been great fun. And I look forward, I'm, my next book that I'm writing is another romantic comedy. So I'm going to take some of your tips and think, oh, what can I put in the beginning that I don't bring out in the end until the end? <laughs> there you go. I'm telling you, set up and pay off. Callbacks. They're, 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 I always call callbacks are the comedian's friend. And it's like you just bury it and they think it's over and you bring it back and people will laugh harder the second and third and fourth time, but only if you hold off for a while, you can't bring it back right away. You got to just wait and then bring it back. And then people are, it's, it's always a surprise. I was surprised you brought that back. Anyway, awesome. Last piece of advice. Last piece of great advice. I love it. Thanks so much, Bob. Oh, total pleasure. <laughs>